Constraints are one of the most powerful stimulants of creativity. And if you don't have the constraints, you often don't have that engine to push you forward. The constraints force you to do the right thing and to say, okay, given our limited resources, what do we do? Better products and experiences take more than just great engineering and design teams to materialize. They rely on collaboration across disciplines, from marketing to legal to human resources and beyond. In season seven of the Design Better podcast, we'll be exploring what it takes to make work more collaborative, creative, inclusive, and impactful throughout your organization. Along the way, we'll learn from our guests how to raise the collaborative intelligence of your teams with insights from experts like Guy Kawasaki, legendary Macintosh evangelist, and Nir Ayal, best-selling author of Hooked and Indistractable. This podcast is hosted by Aaron Walter and Eli Woolery and is presented by Envision, a transformative collaboration platform for all the work you do. Discover more best practices, research, and resources for free at designbetter.com and insidedesign.com. What's the difference between creativity and innovation? What does it take to find your superpowers? How can you become open to embracing failure to learn and grow? Tina Selig, executive director of the Knight Hennessy Scholars Program at Stanford, has spent a large part of her career answering questions like these while studying and teaching creativity, leadership, and entrepreneurship. Tina has a PhD in neuroscience, and we speak with her about how her background influences the way she approaches these topics. We also discuss how to approach creativity in a corporate environment and why being a good listener is an underrated superpower that many of us can cultivate. And one more thing before we get on to the show. We just published a new book. It's called The Collaborate Better Handbook, and it distills many of the lessons we've learned over the course of hosting the Design Better podcast into actionable insights. This book is going to teach you about leadership, creativity, and collaboration from many of our top guests. People like John Cleese, Seth Godin, John Maida, Eileen Fisher, Rochelle King, Steve Johnson, Debbie Millman, Dan Pink, Julie Zhu, and a whole load of other folks as well. You can download the book for free at designbetter.com. Now, let's get on to the show. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith. 
wherever finer podcasts are served. Tina Selig, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. So glad to have you. Tina, as we mentioned in the introduction here, you have a PhD in neuroscience and you've spent a lot of your career studying creativity, leadership, entrepreneurship, and teaching. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you bring from your background in neuroscience into these other endeavors. And then maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing now with the Knight Hennessy Scholars at Stanford. Great. Thanks. Well, one could say there's nothing related to neuroscience and leadership, but actually there's a tremendous amount. Once you start digging in, you realize that when you're doing science in any field, you're at the frontier. There's a lot of uncertainty. You have to come up with some really provocative questions. You need to figure out how you're going to answer them. And this happens when you're leading any organization. And in fact, I run programs on entrepreneurial leadership for PhD students for many years. And they come out of the program often saying, wow, what I'm doing in my lab as a scientist prepares me so well for leadership roles because running a laboratory and being on the frontier of science is very, very similar to being in a situation where you're trying to invent the future. What are some of the core problems you see your students in your program struggle with as they're trying to think about, like, how do I be an innovative and creative leader? One of the things that I'm very excited about related to this is, of course, I teach on inventing the future. And you realize when students have been feeling a lack of control about their own future and the future of the world. And so what I've been really excited about is helping young people feel much more agency, more control, more power in crafting their own lives and in inventing the future that they want. So I think that's one of the most important things that we need to think about as leaders is how do we empower others to feel the agency to really make things happen. You wrote a book offering guidance to 20-year-olds, to young people, what you wished you would have known when you were 20 years old. And I wonder how the thinking that went into that book relates to this idea of, of giving young people agency. Like, did you feel that you didn't have agency when you were that age? And do you think about that differently today? That book grew out of a list I started putting together for my son when he was 16. I realized that he was going off to college and he was this pretty sharp guy, but that there were so many things that I felt I had not really articulated to him as important lessons and insights about what it really meant to craft the life that you want to live. And so this list just kept growing as a Word doc on my computer. And one day I was asked to give a talk for a business leadership group at Stanford. And I decided to pull up this list for inspiration. And it turned into a talk called What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. And over the course of a couple of years, giving and refining this talk, I kept being asked to give it in larger and larger venues. And then I was giving this talk to all of the cadets at West Point. And I realized there's something really in this. I really need to turn this into a book. So that's how the book evolved. And you're absolutely right. The lessons in that book are about how do you see the world as opportunity rich, full of possibility? How do you give yourself permission to follow the rules you want? It doesn't mean break the law, but how do you look at fact that a lot of rules are just recommendations and a lot of the lessons we're taught by others are really giving us very clear constraints that actually don't exist and allowing you to challenge assumptions, to break the rules, 
to come up with a path that really is right for you. That's how the book evolved. And it absolutely plays into everything I teach. I think that these are such powerful insights that we often are not taught when we're growing up. You know, school is very much formulaic these days in so many places. Kids are lined up in rows and columns. The chairs are bolted to the floor. They're taking multiple choice exams and graded, you know, like a piece of meat or, you know, and not looking at each person as an individual who really needs to craft the life that is right for them. Are there any specific lessons from that book, Tina, that kind of float to the top for you? Yes, a lot has to do with challenging assumptions. There are so many things that come our way and we make assumptions about the way things work. But if you're really open-minded and willing to challenge those assumptions, you end up opening up the aperture of what's possible. There are lots of really fun ways to do this. And that's what I try to do in my classes is come up with fun experiences that really drive these lessons home. My most famous famous lesson and exercise is something that's gone viral. It's really been quite funny to see it pop up all over the place. It was a situation maybe about 15 years ago, I was asked to teach one week about entrepreneurship at the new design school, the D school at Stanford. And we had a teaching team that was kind of a cast of thousands and I had one week to teach entrepreneurship. And I thought, what could I do in one week? And so I gave the students, they were, I think about 15 teams. And I gave each team an envelope with $5 in it. And I told them that they had as much time as they wanted over the next few days to think about it. But as soon as they opened that envelope, they had two hours to create as much value as possible, value measured in any way they wanted, starting with this $5. And here's the thing, I did not know what was going to happen. And this is actually just to double click on that for a second. I never give the same assignments twice. Because I want to be surprised as the students are by what happens. So I don't ever want to be anchored by what students last year did. So I've only run this experiment one time. And then I morphed it over time. So what I did is I gave them $5 and two hours. And they then, at the end of the week, they had to create one slide that they were going to present in class to tell the other students what they had done. And they had three-minute presentation time. That's the whole assignment. There's nothing else. $5, two hours, three minutes. Well, I knew you could do something. I knew you could, you know, have a lemonade stand or a car wash. I knew you could do something, that it wasn't going to be a bust. So about a third of the students did that, did, you know, a lemonade stand, a car wash, a bake sale. Okay, that was interesting. They made, you know, $20, $30. Then there were the students who said, you know, that $5, that's a red herring. It's actually the two hours that's valuable. And so they took things that they already had, like cameras or bicycles, and they ended up making, you know, well over $200. What they did is things like setting up a bike tire pumping up station in the middle of the campus and asking for donations. And then when you pumped up people's tires, they gave them money and they gave them much more than, you know, 50 cents. They made over $200. There were teams that, one team that made reservations at all of these restaurants that were very popular in Palo Alto near Stanford. And it happened to be parents weekend. It was very busy weekend. And so when people got in line, it was so long, they said, hey, I'll sell you the reservation for $20. So people were delighted. They're like, oh my God, I'm happy to skip the line for $20. So there were lots of really amazing things that people did with just the two hours. But the team that made the most money was so clever and they really challenged the assumptions about what the value was. And they decided to sell their three minute presentation time to a company that wanted to recruit the students in the class. 
it was so wonderful because it just forced everyone to open their eyes that there's value everywhere around you. Uh, one of my colleagues likes to say that there's a million dollars waiting in every room. It's up to you to discover it. You know, it might be a new friendship you make. It might be a business idea, but it could be anything. And if you're not opening your eyes, you're missing that opportunity. And in fact, I don't know if you know, I, I did a TED talk on how to be lucky. And a lot of these same concepts come out because, again, there's so many opportunities around you. I liken it to the winds of luck. The winds of luck are always blowing, but it's up to you to put up a sail to catch it. That's such a great story. And I think I read it in the context, and it may have been your article or one about you. I'm sorry, I've read so many articles. I'm kind of losing track. But it's sort of in the context of first principles and how do you apply first principles to these problems. But it also seems like a good example of reframing a problem. And you gave a talk, I think, back in 2016 about reframing. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how you know reframing might relate to that concept of first principles. Exactly. I have to say, reframing problems is probably the most important thing I teach in my classes. We so often look at problems through one lens. And if you look at it from a different angle, all of a sudden the solutions pop in. Classic example, I can ask you, what's the sum of five plus five? And the answer is 10 right? But if you turn the problem around and say, what two numbers add up to 10? How many solutions are there? Infinite. You know, of course, there's one plus nine and two plus eight, and but they're negative numbers, they're fractions. There's so many ways that you can do it. And that's really important. If you say, I want to get to 10, what are all the ways for me to get there? There are an infinite number of solutions. And so often we feel boxed in by the five plus five and thinking that's the only way that we're going to get to 10. It's very, very important. And framing and reframing and practicing that every single day is critically important. And every single aspect of your life. I mean, I share a story in one of my books. It's actually very, very personal. But I've told it enough times, so I'm not embarrassed to tell you here. My husband and I, we went through a really difficult patch and I moved out. We were separated. We were separated for two years. And during this time, there were days where I was really, you know, just not very optimistic about whether we were going to make things work. And I could make lists of hundreds of things that drove me crazy about him. And then there were days I was really optimistic and I could make a list of hundreds of things that I thought were really great and why I really, really appreciated him. And then one day I realized they were the same things. And I have to revisit this every single day because, you know, every day you can look at, you know, your partners, your colleagues, your friends, there might be something that drives you crazy, but you realize actually the flip side of that thing is what you were attracted to in the first place. You know, I give you just one example, you know, when we were separated, my husband started going to the gym a lot and he got in really great shape. And so I'd say on the good days, like, wow, he's in such great shape. You know, that's so wonderful. And on the bad days, I would look at it as like, you know, wow, what a bore. Doesn't he have anything better to do? Right. I mean, it was my framing. What was happening was actually pretty objective. He was going to the gym, but I was then projecting all sorts of other things on it. And I think that ability to understand that we're projecting meaning onto different activities allows us to choose which ones are really appropriate. I love this line of thinking of sort of casting off constraints or reframing, rethinking what those constraints are. And what you're doing with your students is helping them broaden their perspective. But the world that they go into, that all of us end up in, you know, it's corporate culture where the, it's just all constraints. It's just, it feels like a lot of like limitations of we're supposed to operate this way for these outcomes, you know, 
marching towards these metrics. What can corporations learn from young people, from a different way of thinking about creativity, innovation that they're not embracing right now? When the pandemic started, I went into hyperdrive, activity with constraints. Because when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden our lives in a moment became so constrained. You know, whether it was things we couldn't buy in the grocery store, the fact that we couldn't go out, the fact that we were now teaching online. I mean, everything turned upside down in a second. And I really explored this and came to the conclusion, which I put together in this talk, about the fact that constraints are one of the most powerful stimulants of creativity. And if you don't have the constraints, you often don't have that engine to push you forward. There's a classic example from Monty Python. Are you guys Monty Python fans? Yeah, we had John Cleese on the show. Okay, great, great, great. Okay, well, he will certainly remember this story because it's one of the famous examples from Monty Python where they had a limited budget for making Monty Python on the Holy Grail and the script called for a horse, you know, big stallion coming over the hill with a knight in shining armor. Well, there was no way they could afford that. So what did they do? They looked around and they grabbed some coconuts and started banging the coconuts together in the sound of hoofbeats. And it not only worked, it became one of the funniest parts of the entire movie and one of the iconic things that uh, they're known for. I think it's really important to keep that in mind is that oftentimes when you look at companies that have way too many resources, they make bad decisions. The constraints force you to do the right thing and to say, okay, given our limited resources, what do we do? Instead of looking at constraints as something very bad, think of them as something as a stimulant. I mean, think about Twitter. When Twitter started 140 characters, you know, what can you do with 140 characters? Well, this became a wonderful platform for people, mm-hmm. almost like a little bumper sticker, you know, that they would send out messages and think about what do I do? What kind of message can I send out with 140 characters? So talking about constraints and the pandemic, it sounds like you started your Knight Hennessy role during the pandemic. And when I was teaching during that period, it was pretty amazing that the students came up with these, you know, wonderful ideas. I teach in the product design program and they're coming up with ideas for, you know, low cost ventilators. And in the very beginning, it seemed to be a very kind of invigorating thing. I mean, everybody was scared, but there was like a lot of enthusiasm to come find solutions. But then as time wore on and the constraints became more around, we can't see each other in person. We're on zoom all the time. We're getting fatigued. There are these different, I kind of, in some ways, maybe negative constraints. What was your experience there? And how did you see students kind of coming through that on the other end of the pandemic? I really appreciate you bringing that up because that is the next step. That's the nuance here, right? Creativity is very stimulated by short-term constraints. But when you end up with unrelenting constraints, it can be extremely disturbing. There's a two-by-two matrix that I created inspired by one by Teresa Mobley from Harvard. She was looking at pressure and creativity, and I started looking at constraints and creativity. So if you look at sort of a two-by-two matrix, and on one side you have constraints, low constraints and high constraints, and the other you have creativity, low and high creativity. If you have high constraints, you can have high creativity when you feel like you're on a mission. Think of Apollo 13, right? You're on a mission and the pressure is on and you can be incredibly creative if you've got a mission that has to be accomplished in a short time. But if it's unrelenting, you feel like you're on a treadmill and that is exhausting. But 
There's also the flip side where you could have low constraints and high creativity when you feel like you're on an expedition. Think about when you're on vacation or taking a walk. You know, you can have no constraints and be very creative. But there also can be situations where you have low constraints and low creativity. That's when you sort of feel like you're on autopilot and you're just doing the same thing over and over again. So one of the goals as a manager, a leader of any organization, is to keep a team sort of above the line going between expedition and mission. Going between being an expedition, being a mission, and not falling below the line, you know, where you feel like you're either on a treadmill or on autopilot. And so it's really interesting. This has been something that I've been exploring. And I also think there's also another level of nuance because sometimes you actually want to drop down into being on autopilot. You know, think about it sometime during the day where you, you know what, I just want to do something mindless. I'm just going to go fold laundry or I'm going to answer some emails. I want to do something that has some level of productivity, but I really want to be mindless for now. So thinking about where you are in this matrix at any one point is very, very helpful. Going between treadmill and autopilot and between mission and expedition and managing the constraints so that you can get you into the appropriate box, the quadrant that you want to be in or that you want your team to be in at any one time. Tina, what's the difference between creativity and innovation? Ha 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 ha. So I wrote a book about this and it resulted from the fact that I was been teaching classes, actually a course called Creativity and Innovation for years. And I realized that I was really using the terms interchangeably and I realized this was a huge missed opportunity. And so the framework that I created called the invention cycle goes through the process from imagination to creativity to innovation to entrepreneurship. And the definitions that I use, and you know, you can use them if you like, other people might disagree, but this is, I find very, very valuable, is that imagination is envisioning the world that doesn't exist, right? I can envision anything right now, right? I can envision, oh, a butterfly is flying around. I mean, you can imagine it and kids do this naturally. Creativity is applying your imagination to solve a problem. So we do this again all the time. You know, you open the refrigerator, you're hungry. You go, oh, there's peanut butter, there's jelly, there's bread. I'm going to make a sandwich, right? You did, that wasn't new to the world, but it, it might possibly be new to you, but you're solving a problem, applying your imagination to solve a problem. Innovation takes it to the next level. That is applying creativity to come up with a unique idea. And there are many times where a creative solution is just fine. Make that peanut butter sandwich. But there are going to be other times when you go, I have to come up with something that no one's done before. I need to really come up with something really innovative. There's a big difference there. And then entrepreneurship is applying that innovation and scaling it and bringing it to the world. And people often conflate all these. People conflate innovation and entrepreneurship. It's like, oh, well, innovation is only if you've actually brought it to life. Well, I think that's silly. There are lots of innovations that for one reason or another have not scaled. And you know, the timing might not be right. You might not have the right resources, et cetera. So having this pathway that goes from imagination to creativity to innovation to entrepreneurship allows you to figure out where you are in the cycle. And the end leads back to the beginning because at the end, once you've scaled something, you now can imagine the next thing and the cycle goes on. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit crashplan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. 
Crash Plan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, Crash Plan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from Crash Plan's multi tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to crashplan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's crashplan.com slash designbetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair, I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code designbetter5. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash design better. Hey, everybody. We hope you're learning about how constraints can inspire creative collaboration from our guest, Tina Selig. We want to take a minute to talk about how Envision can help inspire more inclusive collaboration across your teams. Envision's collaborative canvas freehand makes everything from wireframing, brainstorming, retrospectives, and even getting feedback for the next episode of this podcast easier, impactful, and exciting. With hundreds of templates built for and by your peers, as well as smart widgets and integrations with the tools you rely on, Envision helps you make your workspace work better for you. And with Spaces, you can bring all your team's workflows together in one place. Create a simple, safe, single source of truth for your team by placing Envision documents, external files, and useful links inside your Spaces. No more wasted time, lost files, or crossed wires. So if your company is looking for a single place to come together, 
get organized, co-create, and push work forward, check out Envision at www.envisionapp.com. Thanks so much for listening. And now let's get back to the show. Tina, one of the uh, podcasts that I think was your own podcast, actually, called Leap, there was an episode where you talked about superpowers. And I think, you know, if you're in the frame of mind where you're either trying to get to the next level in your career, or maybe you are in a position where you needed to find a, a new job, kind of identifying your own superpowers is probably a good thing to think about. Do you talk a little bit about superpowers and how you identify or cultivate your superpowers? Yeah, I think that it's really important to think about what is it that you do best in the world and and to really cultivate that. The question is, right, do you play to your strengths or do you strengthen your weaknesses? But understanding what your strengths are is the first way to start. What is it that comes naturally? What do you want to triple down on? And it might be it's not even something that you initially were brilliant at, but it's something you've put enough time into that you've really become skilled at it. And so we often want to hire people who have these superpowers. And I love the concept that I've learned from a colleague of mine of painting the target around the arrow, you know, figuring out what is the superpower and the skills that each individual has, and then shaping the role that they have around what they do really well. And so it starts with actually understanding what you do really well so that you can find yourself in a position where you really shine. You alluded to the idea of luck, and maybe it's something that we could cultivate or maybe tip the odds towards. Could you give us a little insight of like, how do we create our own luck around our career and our creative process? Yes, I care deeply about luck. I grew up with my father always saying, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And I realized, you know, okay, fine, I worked hard. And that really helped me feel like I was becoming luckier. But I realized that hard work is actually just one lever you have at your disposal for becoming lucky. There are opportunities everywhere. And you really need to put yourself in a position to become lucky, whether it means getting out of your personal comfort zone, doing things you've never done before, taking some risks. One of the things I have my students do is to do a little riskometer. The riskometer, something I developed with my colleagues at Stanford when we did a class on risk-taking, it is a circle. It's sort of a spider chart. Imagine putting a hash lines across the circle so that you have, it looks like a spider web. And then you map out your risks on different axes. So one axis might be physical risk. One might be intellectual risk, might be social risk, might be ethical risk. You can put as many different types of risk as you want, and then you map out them on the spider chart, right? The middle is zero and out toward the edge is more, right? So I might say I'm a low physical risk taker. So I would be down at the bottom, but I'm a high social risk taker. That would be out toward the edge. And you map yourself on this. In fact, I invite you guys to do it at some point. It's kind of fun. Share it with other people and you realize how different folks are. You know, some person says, you know, jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, that's just fine for me. You know, another one's like, you got to be kidding. I would never do that. You know, you never catch me doing that. You know, someone would say, oh, of course, I'll give a toast at a wedding. Another person saying, oh, no, please, I would never get up. That would be you know, mortifying. So understanding your own risk profile is the beginning. And then figuring out how can you stretch that a little bit, you know, if you want to. You know, how can I become a little bit more of a physical risk taker? What sort of things can I do that gets me out of my comfort zone and puts me in a position where I might be luckier than I am now because I've taken that little risk? So the flip side of the risk is the failure. And in your book, Ingenious, you talk about the idea of or the importance of embracing failure to find solutions 
And this kind of mirrors the framework that we teach students in design thinking about being iterative and divergent thinking. So talk a little bit about that, the kind of embracing failure side that might relate to risk we just touched on. Yeah, I think failure is one of the most interesting things. I do a lot of exercises with my students to have them come to terms with how they think about failure. One of my favorites, and you can use this in your class if you like, <laughs> is I have the students, after they do their riskometers and we sort of talk about risk, I have them ask them, what happens when you fail? What is your mental model of what the bottom looks like? When you hit bottom, what is that? What is actually happening? What do you think is happening? And some students say, oh my gosh, it's like a black hole. I'm going to fall in. I'll never come out. Others say it's a trampoline. I'm going to hit bottom and then bounce back. Others say it's, you know, shards of glass. Others it's, you know, I'm going to a puddle of mud. Others say it's burning lava. Some say it's quicksand. Some say it's bouncy balls. Some say it's a pool of water. I'm curious for you, what is the bottom made of for you? You know, I have a kind of weird answer because I read this in one of your books or articles, but my bottom is sort of family. I feel like my family will, will be there to help me, to catch me, to help prop me back up. What about you, Aaron? Yeah, you know, the first thing that came to mind was darkness, but I, I like what you said, Eli, because I do think that if you can establish a good foundation for yourself in life, whether it's career or whatever you're pursuing, if there's utter failure, you know, there's a solid foundation there. People that love you, care for you, will support you through difficult times. That's really great. But it also is helpful to like literally figure out what surface it is. Like, is it, you know, is it quicksand that you need your family to pull you out of? Okay. You know, is it a pool that you're drowning and they're going to pull you? Like, what is the mental model you have of when you fail? Yeah, darkness, I think. Darkness, yeah. Bring light to the darkness. Yeah. Right, they come in with their flashlights and show you the way out. Yeah, absolutely. I know that just for me, it is rubber. Now, that does not mean it doesn't hurt, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I hit bottom. It, like, really hurts. But after the initial impact, I get propelled back up. Yeah, I guess I could think of it. I used to wrestle, and so maybe like a wrestling mat where you, it stings a bit if somebody takes you down, but, you know, you can get back up. Yeah, exactly. And you say, okay, I'm going to do this. But the thing is, once you have this mental model and you go, okay, I think it's a black hole and I can't get out. You go, you just made that up, right? Make up a new story. Let's try to create a new story because really and truly when you fail, you are not falling into a black hole, right? You're still here. The problem is if someone has a mental model that failure is so horrible that you're going to die, and never get out of this black hole, you're not willing to take any risks. That ends up becoming a real problem, both individually and for the you know any sort of organization you work with, if you're not willing to try something. I also have my students do failure resumes. So they're resumes of their biggest screw-ups, personal, professional, and academic. I love this exercise because, of course, you can imagine all these Stanford students who are used to succeeding in everything and highlighting all the things that go well. Well, what ends up happening is, you know, there's a flip side to that. There are always things that were failures along the way. And if you can highlight them and really embrace failure as data, and this is really important, failure is data. Like, oh, don't do that again. I have to say, I used to be, when I was younger, a sort of person who beat myself up endlessly when I made a mistake. And I know my students do the same thing. I'm just constantly beating themselves up for any failure. Once I was able to say, all right, that did not work. What can I learn from this? I was able to move on much more quickly. 
to recover and to use that data in a way that I was much less likely to repeat the same mistake. So presumably with your students, there's a a fair bit of support that you and your team offer as they go into the workforce. And they're thinking about like, how do I interview effectively? How do I tell my story? How do I, you know, show what I'm good at? What guidance do you give people for navigating interviews successfully? Yeah, it's interesting. At Night Hennessy Scholars, where I'm currently working, we have a program for all of our first-year students. They do a year-long storytelling, how to tell your story, how to communicate effectively. It's one of the most important skills that you can have, no matter what you do. But certainly, if you're going to be a leader, is to be compelling in the way that you share stories. And the stories can be about anything. It certainly can be about your own life and your skills and what you've accomplished. But we're telling stories all the time at work, whether it's to our colleagues, to our customers, to all of our stakeholders, and being able to communicate effectively is an incredibly important skill. So yes, this is something they learn. You know, I'm super comfortable giving my students lots of feedback about how they present themselves, how they're seen in the world so that they can continue to improve. And I think that's one of the things that we often don't do is give people the feedback that they need on the soft skills that are going to help them really get ahead. What are the common mistakes? Like, what do you see all the time? Because it's very unique that you see so many people who are trying to develop these skills. There's got to be patterns of, okay, these are the tripping hazards in any interview. Well, one of them is being curious. One of our former PhD students did a fabulous series of experiments. They were sort of social psychology experiments around interviews, job interviews. And this was really, really fascinating. She had a set of people, these were all mock interviews, but people who were primed to see the candidate in a negative light. Okay, so they were primed, like, I'm not sure this is a great person for this role, but, you know, interview them anyway. If you told the candidate to have a mindset of curiosity, and then what happened is it actually reversed the negative bias. So if I went in with a mindset that I was going to learn something from the interview, then the person who was interviewing, there was a reverse in even their negative value. So I'll give you a personal example that happened to me years and years ago. It's a story I actually told in my book of what I wish I knew when I was 20. It was right out of school and there was a job I really wanted. And there really was not a job. It was an organization I wanted to work for. And I was a little bit of a pain in the neck in terms of calling them repeatedly, repeatedly, trying to reach the person who I would potentially work with. But they kept telling me to call back at a different time and that person was never there. But they had now, these were days, it was before email, you know, like a whole wall of, you know, little messages from me. I was like, I probably had the only person who called. It was a really new organization. And so they had a whole wall, you know, Tina called, Tina called, Tina called, Tina called. So when this person finally got there and got the messages, she invited me to come in. And first thing that she said was, I have to tell you, you're not a good match for this organization because you're just too pushy. So I could have been defensive. I could have gotten up and left. I could have cried. And I said, wow, I really appreciate you're telling me that. I think I've miscommunicated or, you know, I've been misinterpreted. I think most people would think of me as high energy and enthusiastic. And I'm sorry that that was interpreted as being pushy. And she melted. We had a wonderful conversation and I walked out with a job. It's just an example of, you know, if you're open-minded, if you have a mindset of curiosity, you're going to 
be much better off. You know, that was a way that also that I made myself lucky by being open-minded. So I think that's one of the things. These days with the world that has become so siloed and where people have such very different points of view, one of the things that we really spend a lot of time teaching is students have conversations, difficult conversations across lines of difference. How do you listen? How do you be a really good listener? How can you be open-minded? How can you be curious? Because you don't know everything. And each conversation can open you up to a whole new way of looking at a situation. Tina, I really love that spirit. And one thing that we often ask our guests as we wrap up the interview is what's inspiring them right now. But I'm also curious, Aaron, I just wrapped up a book about the podcast that we're launching soon. And I know you've written several books. Is there anything that you're thinking about writing, might write that you can talk about, or also anything that's inspiring you? Great. Those are two very different questions. I'll answer both of them. Uh, What's inspiring me right now is that tonight, the Knight Hennessy Scholars are going to be participating in our annual Ideas Festival, where they are going to get up and pitch projects that they want to work on. And these projects range from healthcare to the environment to education, just a huge range of topics. And then teams get formed around these projects. And over the course of the year, these teams work on it. And at the end of the spring, we have a showcase of all the projects. So really excited to see the projects that get pitched tonight and to see where those go. And your second question about writing a book. First of all, writing a book is hard. Congratulations on your upcoming book. It is a, you know, act of creation that is extremely effortful. I've been playing around whether I want to write another book. One of the things I've been excited about is the question of how we decide to decide. Now, you can tell me if this is actually interesting because I've been sort of prototyping it and just wrote a medium post about this to getting some feedback that we think that the most important thing is how we make decisions. But I think before that is the decision to actually make a decision. So many people don't take the agency to say, I'm actually at a decision point. And what kind of decision do I need to make right now? And to really engage in the world with a mindset that every single day you get to make a lot of very important decisions and you need to decide which of those you're actually going to decide. There are lots and lots of research on how we decide. But what about what do we decide? What are the decisions we make and when do we decide to make them? Many people go through life not making the decisions. They didn't even know they were at a decision point. And so it's a little meta. So that's trying to figure out if it's a little bit too obtuse or something that I should really start exploring. I think you have something there. Definitely interesting. (laughs) Well, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Well, Tina, it's been wonderful having you here on the show. We thank you so much for your time and for your insights. And if people want to learn more about you and your work, where could they go? Probably the first place is you can follow me on Twitter. That's just T-C-Lig, T-S-E-E-L-I-G. LinkedIn, Twitter, those are the places where I post a lot of information about what's going on. Fantastic. Thanks again so much. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio and brought to you by Envision. If you found this episode useful, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or simply drop a link to the show into your team Slack channel 
It'll help others discover the show. Need tools to raise your team's collaborative intelligence? Visit EnvisionApp.com, where you'll find a single place to come together, get organized, co-create, and push work forward. And visit InsideDesign.com and DesignBetter.com, where you'll find our library of free eBooks, audiobooks, videos, and articles about foundational concepts of design and business. Until next time.